Welcome to the Aesthetic Doctor Podcast. We don't shy away and keep secrets here. We empower you with education, telling you the truth about all things aesthetic medicine while encouraging you to be the best version of yourself. It's time to look great and feel good doing it. This is your host, mom, speaker, and board-certified physician, Dr. Judith Forger. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 15 of the Aesthetic Doctor podcast. We have another super duper expert today, and we have Dr. Elizabeth Jiang, and she is an ophthalmologist, board certified. And further than that, she is a fellowship trained oculoplastic and reconstructive surgeon. What that means is that not only did she do four years of a eye or ophthalmology residency, she spent an additional two years just getting further training and surgeries that are either plastic or reconstructive for around the eye, such as eyelid surgery. So she actually specializes in eyelid surgeries, and that is what she's here to talk to us about. Today's episode is all about eyelid surgeries. She does eyelid surgeries um, for both cosmetic and medical reasons. And so please join me in welcoming Dr. Jian. And here you go, jumping right into our conversation on eyelid surgeries. Dr. Jiang, I'm so excited that you're here today. And, you know, I in my office only do non surgical aesthetics. So I actually refer or sometimes have to kind of recommend surgical approaches to my patients because I really well know my limitations. And I think blepharoplasty is probably the one that I refer patients most for simply because I feel like I have a lot of patients in my office, especially. As they age, they feel like their eyelids are heavy, they have extra tissue. And then the thought is always like, oh, let me just get some Botox for everything. But then after I examine them and I sort of recognize the limitations of what I can do non-surgical, I think me recommending them to really talk to an expert such as yourself about blepharoplasty is probably the most common referral that I do. So especially for my listeners, I think this will be super interesting. Talking about blepharoplasties, um, can you just give us an overview of what sort of the different um, eyelid surgeries are that you do? Yeah. So blepharoplasty is specifically taking off that extra eyelid skin. So the eyelid skin is the thinnest skin on the body. And so it does stretch with time and, you know, loss of collagen. So with uh, pure blepharoplasty, really, it's just taking off extra eyelid skin and sometimes the underlying muscle and fat as well. If there's little bulges in the eyelid, taking out that fat can also help improve the appearance. If someone's eyelid is especially low, that might be due to the muscle that lifts the eyelid called the levator aponeurosis, kind of slipping back and not uh, being able to pull the eyelid as much. So that can be corrected through something called ptosis repair, which can be done at the same time of blepharoplasty. And typically, uh, there are different techniques for it, but um, probably uh, my most used technique is actually advancing that muscle and uh, because it slid back to actually suture it back to where it needs to be in order to really open up the eyes more. Awesome. Yeah. And that's really kind of like, I, I wish we had like models here, but it's really just kind of that extra tissue, like right up in the upper eyelid that most people kind of feel with age, just like you said. Now, 
some of my patients might not know this, but these are all in-office procedures, right? Where people go home the same day. Can you talk a little about the downtime and how long the procedures take and what people can expect if they're kind of considering a blepharoplasty? Yeah, so blepharoplasty can be done in the office or it can be done in the operating room. And that's really the preference of the patient as well as what uh, you know, equipment and facilities the surgeon has. Uh, so I've definitely done blepharoplasty in you know, a procedure room um, for patients who are able to kind of tolerate the numbing process. So basically I numb up the eyelids by injecting um, an anesthetic, you know, lidocaine with epinephrine um, uh, mixed with marcaine with epinephrine and that numbs it up. So the medication, when it goes in, it does burn, but that burning just lasts for a few seconds. And then that anesthesia sets in. And while you may still feel touch, you're not going to feel pain anymore. Uh, then part of surgery is just removing all that extra tissue. Uh, there can be some cautery, which is applying heat in order to stop bleeding as well as uh, shrink fat. And then afterwards, after taking all that tissue out, just suturing it closed. And that can be done with a suture that's dissolving or a suture that does have to be removed later. And they're kind of pros and cons to each of the, um, those techniques. And so for people who may not be able to tolerate um, you know, the, the pain of the injection or tolerate lying down because uh, you do need a lie flat for me to do this. Um, so some people have, you know, back issues where lying down flat for a while might be a problem. Then I take them to the operating room. It's still outpatient, but then you can get an IV, you can get an anesthesia, you can made to be a little bit more sleepy. You can get, you know, other medications to help with muscle relaxation um, and anxiety. And so a lot of patients do end up preferring to go to the operating room. Um, but of course, there's additional costs for that operating room and anesthesia. Yeah. I mean, I guess, it, it, thank you for clarifying that. What I mostly meant was that it is an outpatient procedure. Um, in terms of the downtime, what do most patients kind of, in your experience, what is the normal downtime like? And are there any effects on vision initially? How long can people not drive kind of those things as far as daily life downtime? Yeah, so if it's done in the office um, or done in the outpatient uh, surgery center, I do recommend someone else do the driving for the day of the sure. procedure. Um, you know, obviously, if you're uh, in the OR and you're getting anesthesia through your IV, you definitely cannot drive. Yes. Um, but even if you don't get the anesthesia through IV, you don't want to drive after a procedure like that. You want someone else to take you home because, um, you know, for the next two to three days, you're going to have swelling and that swelling is going to get worse, actually, for about two to three days and then it'll start to get better. So most important thing is just lots and lots of ice or cold compresses during those first three days to really keep that swelling down. Um, because, you know, if you have a lot of swelling that can actually stretch out the skin a little bit more afterwards, you know, I've had patients who actually, you know, had their surgery done on a Thursday or Friday, and then actually did go back to work on Monday after icing, you know, really constantly. Wow. But those are people usually who have like desk job type uh, work or, you know, with COVID working at home. And so no one's really seeing them because you are still going to be, you know, definitely swollen on day three. I uh, say on average, 80% of that swelling is gone after two weeks. I've had patients who, when they're really good about the icing, you know, they basically look fully healed at two weeks. I had one patient who didn't follow any instructions and didn't do any icing and she was swollen for at least a month after surgery. So that ice is super important. Like, like everything else, right? We want our patients to kind of listen to us and follow our advice because we say most of the stuff for a reason, not just because we feel like it. Yes, definitely. 
Um, so I would say, you know, a lot of my patients go back to work after a week, but no heavy lifting or deep bending for two weeks after surgery. Um, and, you know, at one week, you're still going to have signs of swelling. So it depends on what kind of job you have. If you're you know, in front of clients or people that you don't um, want them to kind of see that you've had recent surgery, then I would say uh, you want to take two weeks off of work. Yeah, that's really doable, though. So we talked a lot about sort of the upper eyes. I know, um, obviously, there's upper and lower eyes and the lower eyes, especially when people have like that big balls of the lower eyelid. Um, what, can you tell us a little bit more about lower eyelid blepharoplasties? Yeah, so lower eyelid blepharoplasty, sometimes um, it is extra skin, but a lot more it is that fat that's coming forward. So we have a tissue called the septum that kind of holds the fat back. And as we get older, it just, you know, thins out, it's not as strong. And so those fat pads start coming forward. Also, because we live in a world of gravity, things start descending. So, you know, your, your muscles and your teeth kind of start uh, descending down. And so that can also create even a hollowed look underneath your eyes. So lower lip blepharoplasty is definitely a more involved surgery than upper lip blepharoplasty. And so that is done in the operating room. It is an outpatient procedure. So you still go home the same day. Um, but typically I will put people completely asleep um, uh, with like general anesthesia for a lower lip blepharoplasty because I'm really pulling up a lot of tissue and doing a lot more uh, manipulation. Um, but the post-operative care is typically the same. It's still really just icing, icing, you know, lots of ice for three days and typically looks good at, um, at that two week mark. Awesome. Now, if people are considering the procedure, what would you recommend they kind of look for in a surgeon to perform that procedure for them? Yeah, so if you're really just looking at eyelid surgery, I really do suggest an acroplastic surgeon. So I do have lots of patients who come and say, well, why wouldn't I go to a plastic surgeon? Well, as an acroplastic surgeon, I am a plastic surgeon and my training is um, so four years of ophthalmology residency. So just all about eyes. And during that time, I'm already doing eyelid surgery because eyelid surgery is part of, you know, the, the eye region. And then I did an extra two years of fellowship training just specifically on the eyelids and area around the eyes. So compare that to a plastic surgeon who does a six year residency, but they're doing the entire body, right? They're doing skin grafts. They're doing breast augmentation, breast reduction, tummy tucks, really the entire body. And so depending on their training, they may not do that many eyelid surgeries during their training, but, you know, I spent two years just eyelid training, uh, um, just doing surgery and eyelids and operating four to five days a week. Uh, so it's, it's a lot more specific training to the eyelids that uh, knowing the anatomy to the eyelids, um, I think is really important for all this. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm so glad you kind of mentioned that. And, you know, when I tell people like we have true experts here, you know, Dr. Jiang is somebody who really spent six years essentially just training to be where she is. And then, you know, the training never stops, right? Like if we are really on top of our field, we do continuing medical education all the time. We kind of advance our surgical techniques. We keep up with the literature and, you know, your entire focus is in the eyes. So I completely agree with you. I think um, people should seek out oculoplastic surgeons. Um, and, you know, one of the ways I sometimes describe it to people is like, this is really expensive real estate up here, you know, <laughs> like your eyes really, really matter. So thank you again for really um, telling us in depth how much training really went into um, you getting to where you are. Now, some of the other things that you've kind of mentioned is a little bit of um, the hollowness and all of that stuff. Um, I assume you sometimes combine doing blepharoplasty with Botox and fillers? 
Yes, definitely. So, um, uh, so when you do fillers, then you know usually you do have to continue to do fillers if they're you know hydrolonic acid because that does is absorbable um, with time. You can also do fat grafting actually at the time of surgery. Mm. And so with that fat grafting, some of that fat is going to absorb, but uh, you know some of it does you know stay around and it's essentially permanent. Where do you get the fat from in your practice? I usually I go down the the side of the thigh. Okay, from the thigh. Okay, yeah, it doesn't uh, take a lot of fat to to fill. Yeah, no, it's just a little. <laughs> so bit. Just, I just always bit. wonder because sometimes you know, like for other surgery, people take it from like the um, bellies or the buttocks or wherever. So I guess it's more like an interest thing where you like to go. So it's it's really the side of the thigh. But how much fat do you think you harvest? Yeah, I mean, not um, maybe like. 20 cc's it's really okay. not i'm yeah, sure people much. would love for you to take more most people i was like why you were there you know yeah i mean the reason i do the side thigh is just it's a small incision easy to hide um you know there's uh, plenty of fat there do I, I mean basically you're not going to notice any loss of fat from the amount <laughs> of fat i'm taking um but there's no like nerves there that i'm worried about you know so it's very safe area just to take a little bit of fat. awesome awesome and um you also do brow lifts so tell us like a what a brow lift is and how would people other than of course we always recommend everybody get a consult but how would sort of the average person know do they need a brow lift or do they need a blepharoplasty and so sometimes uh, people do need both. So um, the brows, if they descend and they're uh, really rather low, then that's also going to you know change the appearance. And so um, this actually, I think, happens a little bit more with men because they have heavy brows. But mm. if your brows are below what's called your orbital rim, so if you actually touch your face, you can actually feel that rim. And if the brow hairs are kind of falling below that, then you could probably... Uh, benefit from a brow lift. And there are a lot of different ways to do brow lifts. Um, some are more invasive and bigger surgeries and some are kind of smaller surgeries. So depending on how much lift you need and how much you want to do, it's going to depend on you know, what technique is kind of offered to you. Um, there's something called an indirect brow lift that can be done at the time of the blepharoplasty or tosis repair, where basically you're just putting some sutures under the brow to support the brow up. So it's not a huge lift, but you know, if you just have a slight, um, uh, droop or, you know, you don't have that nice, you know, arch of, uh, of your brow that can give, that can, uh, get the brow, uh, arch back. Um, and that's really like just minimal extra time and, and anesthesia, very, um, you know, kind of a, a much simpler procedure, you know, probably the biggest procedure would be an endoscopic brow lift where you're actually making incisions in um, the hairline and using endoscopic tools to actually dissect the entire forehead and then pulling the entire forehead up. So that also pulls the brow up. Um, and so that is definitely a, a much bigger surgery. Um, there are um, other types where there's something called a direct brow lift where you actually make an incision above the brow, but that can leave a scar and typically not something I do for cosmetic patients, though um, I have actually on a few select patients, um, like one who always wore bangs and so it would cover that incision and she was actually uneven between her two brows. So that particular technique is the easiest to get asymmetry to become symmetric when you're just operating on one side. Uh, and, and actually she healed really well. There was really minimal scarring, very easily covered by the way she um, kept her hair. And, you know, and I talked to her about like, well, what if you decide not to have bangs? She's like, I've been wearing my hair like this for a decade. It's not changing. So she was very happy with the results on that. But, you know, typically uh, 
I reserve direct brow lifts more for like men who have kind of bushy eyebrows. You can really hide that scar much easier. Um, and then there's also a, a, like a coronal um, brow lift where you actually make a, a large incision in the hairline as well. And instead of just endoscopic, but you can actually get more of a lift because you can actually cut out some of the scalp and really pull it up. Whereas with endoscopic, you're not cutting out uh, tissue. You're just um, uh, dissecting under the tissue and then pulling it up and then putting new sutures to anchor it there. Super interesting. And, and that really also underscores two things. Number one, you really need a consultation and then it has to be a joint conversation between what your goals are, what your surgeon can do. And, and if you seek out an expert, they know all these techniques, they have all these tools. So there's not just one way they do it. They really can decide with you to do it the best way for your anatomy and your goals. Um, you know, when I read on your website, so first of all, um, you know, we're going to link later in the show notes, um, but, you know, Dr. Jiang has a fabulous website called dreyelet.com and there's some before and afters also, so people can really see what the different procedures can do. But I saw that you do permanent reduction of, or removal of eyelashes, like, and I, I guess I was fascinated by that, like why would somebody want to permanently remove their eyelashes? So if their eyelash is growing away, so it's touching the surface of their eye, that can cause a lot of discomfort. And so that's typically why people get their eyelashes taken out. It's, it's, that's an eyelash that's growing the wrong way. Um, it's an abnormal eyelash. So um, do they, so permanent removal is then permanent, right? And it's really just for medical reasons, of course, not cosmetic reasons. What do those people do then without eyelashes? Or is it just select few that will grow that way? Luckily for most people, it's just a select few and not a lot of eyelashes. But unfortunately for some people, it will be a lot of eyelashes. Um, there uh, you know, are conditions where sometimes you can actually operate on the eyelid and turn the eyelid out. So it you know, it no longer touches the eye, um, but then some people aren't really candidates for surgery for whatever reason, especially kind of older patients. And so they may elect to just have the eyelashes permanently removed instead of having a surgery to actually turn the lid back into proper position. Oh uh, yeah. And, and again, for lay people, the reason that will be a problem is obviously that the eyelashes growing the wrong way would irritate the actual eye, correct? And cause right. abrasions and all of that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, if something touches your eye constantly, that's very uncomfortable. Yeah. So I love the overview that you gave us. Um, something I asked a lot of my patients, uh, I'm sorry, a lot of my guests is like, what is your favorite procedure to do? I know we love them all. That's why we picked the field. But what is the one that every time you see it on your schedule, you go, I love doing this? You know, I really do actually love doing upper lip blepharoplasties. It's, um, you know, they're, I don't want to say easy to do, but kind of in the gambit of uh, all my surgeries, they, you know, they are one of the, the kind of simpler procedures and, you know, they just get great results and patients are usually happy afterwards. So it's kind I, of like and a I mean, I guess win. that is like an awesome procedure, right? They're not, you know, the, like you have a good success rate and everybody's happy. Like what's not to love about that. Right. Right. Um, now I know you, in, in the realm of aesthetics, do you have a favorite procedure to receive? Like what is your favorite procedure to get done on yourself? Um, so I do inject my uh, own Botox to myself. <laughs> so it's you injecting your own Botox. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. That is my favorite. I feel like Botox is just the bomb. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for giving us this overview. That was really, really great. Um, 
you know, I've mentioned your website. Um, if people are interested, where can they find you? Yeah, best thing is just to go to my website, uh, www.dreyla.com. And that'll always point you to where I am at. Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have you. And, um, you know, thank you for sharing with us and for doing all the great things um, for your patients. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Aesthetic Doctor Podcast with Dr. Judith Borger. We'd love to connect with you outside of the show. Follow Dr. Borger on Instagram at Dr. Borger and find more online and ways to work with Dr. Borger at www.theaestheticdoctor.com. Until next time, be well.